Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 156 of the North American Outdoors Podcast. My name is Heidi Rayo, and I'm coming to you from the great state of Texas. Today, I am happy to have in my little podcast studio, Luke Rayo. Hello. Well, thank you for joining me today in my studio. And the reason I brought you by is because you have done some pretty exciting things this past hunting season, haven't you? I have. So first of all, tell me how long you've been hunting. Ever since I was a Sorry about that. The listeners want to know when this podcast is released. There you go. So you've got some friends that knew that you were doing this today, don't you? Yeah. All right. So let's go back to the question. Um, Tell me when you started hunting. Ever since I was little, whenever I could carry a gun by myself, I started to hunt. Do you even remember ever not having a firearm and learning about safety and learning how to hunt? Or is that just something that's always been part of your upbringing? It's just something that's always been a part of my life, just being around guns and learning about them. Okay. Are they Were they always interesting to you? Yeah, they were. Well, that's awesome. So I guess it's because growing up in a family, you know, with four of y'all, and me having a career that revolves around firearms and teaching people how to use firearms safely and responsibly and teaching people good marksmanship skills at the range, and teaching people how to hunt. And then with your dad, now being a retired game warden, that was just something that was always a part of our lives was, you know, whatever we did, wherever we went, it usually always involved something with a firearm. So what do you remember about that? Well, I would remember days we would go down to the range, all six of us, and we'd bring our own little 22 pistols AR that our ARs that we got for Christmas and we'd go town down to a range and we'd all spend the day down there and we'd all just have a great time 
So it was a lot of fun spending the day with your brothers and, and us plinking with our 22s and shooting steel targets with our 22s. But when did the real work begin? It began after we got home because we had up to 50 or 12 guns we had to clean. Right. So, <laughs> so whose job was it to clean them? It was my dad's, but uh, all of us wanted to help in and we all wanted to learn how to clean guns. So usually all six of us. That's right. So how important is it to clean your gun? It's very important. Even if you shoot one round, 20 rounds, 100 rounds, it doesn't matter. You still clean your gun. Why? Because I hear so many people tell me, oh, it's not broken in until I put 500 rounds through it. Then I'll clean it. Well, that's not how it works because if you know the anatomy of a firearm and the firing sequence, when you pull the trigger, the firing pin strikes the primer of the rifle, pistol, cartridge, or the shotgun shell which then ignites the gunpowder, which pushes the bullet outwards the the barrel, and then all the gases and gunpowder that built up in the bullet that pushed out the bullet dirties up the barrel. Right. Good job. So just to recap what you said, anytime you are shooting a rifle or a handgun, and handguns include pistols and revolvers, You load the ammunition, which is a cartridge, into the the chamber. And when you squeeze that trigger, everything else happens inside the gun, right? Yep. Yep. So you squeeze the trigger, and that makes the firing pin inside of the gun strike the... Primer. Primer. The primer causes a spark, which does what? Ignites the gunpowder, which releases gases that build up to push the bullet out the end of the barrel. Absolutely. Fantastic. So, and of course, um, shotguns, you use shells for your ammunition. So you insert shotgun shells into the chamber and it does the same thing. You pull the trigger and it ignites the, um, it hits the firing pin, which ignites the gases, building up pressure, pushing out the shot or the slug out the shotgun barrel. So what happens when all of that pressure builds and all of that gunpowder is doing its job inside of the the action and, and going down your barrel. What is that doing? It's dirty, dirtying up your barrel up and down with all that those gases and the gunpowder particles. Yeah, and it has a buildup of carbon. And what do you think that does if you if you even shoot it one time? Does it make a difference? Yes, it does. Okay. So what happens if you shoot it, you know, 25 times or 50 times and don't clean it in between? That could put damage to your bar- the gun, the barrel. It could rust. Mm-hmm. It could be damaged. It could. So if something doesn't work properly and you keep putting more sludge and junk, you know, building it up, you know, eventually you're going to have a malfunction. Your gun's not going to do what it's supposed to do. So and it, it could actually be dangerous, right? That's why it's so important to every single time that you handle your firearm, even if you shoot it one time at the range or on a hunt, every single time you handle that firearm, make sure you bring it home. And when you get it home, where's your ammunition? It's stored away from your gun. Yep. Separate and nowhere near your gun. 
and then the cleaning begins. So how long does it take if you if you do a really good job and a really thorough job cleaning, how long does it take you per gun to clean usually? If you're really good at cleaning, it can probably take you 15 to 30, but if you're a beginner, probably 45. A lot of people tend to bring their guns to gunsmiths to have them cleaned, but that's, in my opinion, that's a waste of money. Why is that? Because you can get oils and pads in bulk for a better better price, a gun, that you can get a locksmith with. That's true. That's true. It always amazes us when we talk to new shooters or even experienced shooters, um, how many people will actually leave their firearm um, maybe for two weeks at a time to get in line to be cleaned by a gunsmith or somebody that um, is having people pay them to clean guns. Like I always tell the boys, man, that's a really good side hustle because some of these people are getting $50, $75 a gun just to clean a gun. So my kids are pretty good at, at cleaning guns. So so again, we're talking about equipment. We're talking about being raised around firearms. And so tell me why that's important to have that foundation of safety. So um, you know, you, you learn from a very, very young age, as, as long back as you can remember, that I don't even think you remember any other way, but to be safe and not touch the guns until, you know, you were given permission or we were together um, and we were right there with you and showing you how to use it and how to, you know, take it apart and how to, you know, be very safe with your firearms. Why, why do you think that was important looking back at your upbringing why is that important to where you are today? Like, what what has that foundation given you over the years? How do you feel when you go shoot? How do you, you know, how do you take care of your own equipment? I think it's a lot easier to learn at a younger age. So whenever you grow up, you don't have to learn about the basics. You can start to learn about more specific stuff. And another thing is if you learn young, you can be drawn for a youth hunt which I have been on many in my life that is so let's talk about that the whole reason I brought you in today was to talk about the good stuff so here in Texas we have a program it's a youth hunting program and nine is the youngest age that you can apply for a youth hunt and hopefully be drawn to go on a hunt so some of the requirements are number one you have to have your hunter education certification once you have that, you can go on a website and you can search hundreds of opportunities um, because the state has a working relationship with landowners. And if, if you have some property here in Texas or even beyond, there's we have partnerships with other states that have participated in you know this youth hunting program that we do with the state of Texas. So landowners can work with the state and they can go into an agreement where they can bring youth out onto their property. And of course, there's rules and contracts and things like that. But it is a fantastic program to introduce young people and their adults and their parents into you know the world of hunting and firearms and safety. So this program is designed to give youth more opportunities to get outdoors and to do some great um, wildlife management practices because one of the main reasons these landowners get into an agreement with the state is they may be overrun with feral hogs on their property, 
or they may have such an abundant population of white-tailed deer that they need help managing their herd. So we have permits here in Texas that a landowner can apply for, and one of our state biologists will come out to the property and they will do surveys. They'll do aerial surveys and they'll do population density estimations to determine how many deer they believe would be a good number to be living on that habitat. And if those numbers are high, then the state will issue permits for that landowner to take those extra deer out of their population. So this is a great partnership that we have with um, the state, the landowners, and the public. So it's the kiddos that can actually take advantage of these extra deer permits. So Luke has every year gone online and searches the database of all these hunts that have been scheduled. And you have your choice on you know, different species or different locations across the state. And it's all across, you know, starting in probably July, depending on what type of animal can be hunted, all the way through some even into April. So, you know, Texas has one of the most liberal hunting seasons there is because we have such a variety of game animals and non-game animals here in our state. And you can do a lot of different hunting opportunities um, depending on where you go across Texas. So Luke has applied for, gosh, how many different hunts do you apply for each year? Not that you get drawn for all of them, but how many hunts do you apply for each year? Well, it kind of depends on what you want. Like, some years I've put in for 20, 25 hunts, haven't gone in. As an example, last year I put in 20, 25 hunts. I got picked twice, so it's a big gamble. That's right. So on the hunts that you did get drawn for, um, they happen to be deer hunts, right? White-tailed deer hunts. So tell me about the hunt that you went on. Um, It was a wildlife management area here in Texas that is overrun with deer. And you and your dad got drawn and it was in December. It was like the first weekend in December, I believe. And, you know, in te- in Texas, you never know what the weather's going to be like. So you hope that it's a little bit chilly in December because it makes you, you know, feeling, feeling the moment of a deer hunt in December. But in reality, that weekend, it was in the 80s. And so you and your dad were sitting in that deer blind just in a, what, shorts and a t-shirt, I think. Yeah. So tell me about the setup of that hunt. So we got to the check-in station before sunrise like everybody else and how this worked is they had about 20 spots open but as the world goes some people didn't show up so they do this thing called standbys so people from around that didn't get picked can come to the ranch and apply for a standby so what that means is the five people say that didn't show up they can be replaced by a standby. So what a standby is, is people from around would come to the ranch to apply to be in the place of those five people that didn't show up. So how many people usually come and take the chance of being drawn as a standby hunter? There's been as many as 20 I've seen. There's been as little as three I've seen. 
So how it works is they would come to the ranch, not even knowing if some people wouldn't show up. So everybody could be there and those 20 people will be turned down. So, but if there isn't, if there isn't everybody there, they would put their names down as a standby. And then before we would start to hunt, they would get their names drawn out of a hat or something. Then those five people that been drawn stay at the ranch and those 15 that didn't leave. Okay. So that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? If you live close by an area that's offering, you know, hunting opportunities or youth hunting opportunities and you don't get your application in before the deadline happens months before the hunt, you know, keep your eyes open and take advantage if you're looking for places to hunt, take advantage of these standby walk-up opportunities because the few times that Luke has been drawn on youth hunts, it has always amazed us how many people show up for standbys. And what amazes us even more is, my gosh, what an opportunity to get drawn for a youth hunt. And some of these hunts are in some pretty amazing places, you know, across Texas, for example. You know, they have hunts at state parks. And some of these state parks are, are pretty pristine hunting locations. And they shut the park down to the public. You know, obviously, there's no campers or anybody where it would be unsafe. So it's pretty amazing to get drawn at some of these locations and it never ceases to amaze me that people people just don't show up. They just no show for these these trips. Yeah, and and it's not like random ranches like about 2 years ago I went with my mom to Guadalupe River State Park for an exotic hunt. Mm-hmm. My point is places that you would never expect will have these hunts places that are overrun with deer that you would never expect have hunts get ready for the greatest roast of all time the roast of tom brady a netflix live event happening may 5th hosted by kevin hart the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. That was a really cool opportunity that we got to go on um, because when we arrived, of course, the park was already shut down to the public and we had special passes to get into the gate. And we pretty much had the park to ourselves when we were camping. I mean, us and the couple others that were drawn for that weekend's hunt and driving through the, you know, the, the vacant park. How many deer did we see and and how many exotic animals, the axis, the fallow, how many did we see just driving through that afternoon? Oh, we saw a ton. We went to the river to have a picnic lunch and just driving down that road, we saw about 10 deer just on the road, just watching. 
Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, getting out and exploring, if you love the outdoors, if you love to explore new places and, you know, go go to different places to hunt and, you know, to camp or to fish, sometimes you have these hidden gems that are not too far off a main interstate that maybe normally you would, would never think to take a little detour and, and go check out. But this hunt that we got to go on, it was just that opportunity. It was not too far off a major interstate. And my gosh, once we got off the beaten path and, you know, entered through the gates of this park, I mean, there was this huge cliff that, you know, the river was beneath it. And it was just such a neat, neat scenery and being so far away from the city it was nice to kind of get away and not have much cell service that weekend that's one of the good things about hunting because you're in the city but with these hunts you go out to to the woods you get to relax and it's nice to just be there to have a break from life the cities how old are you 13 and what were you saying about have a relaxing break? So, but I mean, but that, you really struck a chord there because, you know, we as adults that you know, we carry full time jobs, you know, that that have kids that are a second full time job when we're running around and going to sports and concerts and you know meets and matches and whatever else our crazy schedules are like. To hear, you know, we're stressed. I mean, I'm stressed all the time. I live in stress, but I thrive in that environment. But when you hear a 13-year-old say that, you know, sometimes as adults, we forget that, you know, young people carry stress in their own way. Um, Things that we don't think are that big of a deal for, you know, a teenager, through their eyes, it is a massive deal. So whether they have a big test coming up or whether a good friend of theirs, you know, is, you know, saying something behind their back or they get into a squabble with a friend, you know, that can be really stressful in their world. And I think that's one of the coolest things if you do get to go hunting and if you ever get the chance to take a a youth out hunting, you know, whether it's your own or whether it's, you know, an organized deal where you're introducing somebody new to hunting just that precious time that you get to sit in a blind or get to know them, even your own kids, get to know them a little bit better. Um, that's that's really when you hear, you know, life lessons and stories and, and things that they're experiencing. And, you know, you get some of the deepest conversations and some of the pretty coolest questions that, you know, my kids have asked me sitting in a deer blind that, you know, I never thought they really cared one way or another about whatever it may be, but you never know how how much you're being watched as an adult from a young person. You know, you think that your words sometimes don't matter or they're falling upon deaf ears when you're trying to, you know, teach them good morals, good values. And sometimes when their actions show what you've taught them for years and years and years, you realize how how much of an influence you are and how much they have listened to you and watched you. So, yeah, about about that. Um, whenever kids and parents are, I mean, not locked, but if they're in a blind, it's a great way to connect with them, spend time with them, get to know them a lot better. You stuck with me for 14 hours. You know... <sighs> 
I I love 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 sitting in a deer blind. We have packed you know three meals in our backpack. And there's been several hunts that I've gotten to experience with my kiddos um, individually, you know, each of them as they've grown up. And we each have a backpack and we might get to our hunting location at, you know, 430 in the morning, well before sunup, because we want to make any little bit of noise that we have to well before legal shooting hours happen. So there's been many times that we have, you know, meandered our way to our deer blind or our hunting blind well before sunup, you know, by nothing but moonlight. And once we get into our blind, you know, how many times have we had breakfast, snacks, lunch, snacks, (laughs) dinner, snacks until shooting hours ended? Um, We don't get out of those blinds unless, of course, we absolutely have to, but we do our best to, to not move out of those blinds. And to me, I mean, that time goes by so fast. I, I don't get bored. I don't get fidgety. I mean, I love sitting in a blind because especially if you're sitting in a blind somewhat close to water, everything comes to water at some point during the day to, to take a drink or to bring their young, you know, whether it's what you're hunting or what you're not hunting. I mean, how many critters have we seen sitting in deer blinds? We've seen tons to squirrels, to hogs. It, it's incredible. Songbirds, you know, we saw, um, what do we see? Chocolacas, those little roadrunners. Um, the things that you wouldn't expect make an appearance, you know, when you're out when you're out hunting. So it's, it's a pretty cool experience to be able to do that. So um, again, back back to you, back to your youth hunts. So tell me about the, the last hunt that you went on and you and dad showed up before sunup, you know, you waited for your check station and every single hunt is different. So um, some hunts that you get drawn for are pre-assigned. And what that means is you already know where you're going to be before you even arrive. Um, some hunts are on an individual landowner's property and same thing, you know, they have blinds set up across their property and they know exactly where you're going to be, how far you're going to be taking a shot. Um, some you get drawn for, or you apply for to be drawn. They're in a full on resort type mansion that the landowner may have and everything is provided, all your meals and you are very well taken care of. And at the other extreme, sometimes you can apply for hunts that are primitive and there is nothing but a piece of land to pitch a tent and pretty much you're on your own and uh, you have to scout out your own area, bring your own pop-up hunting blind. So it depends on what your comfort level is and you know just what kind of experience you want for that hunt. And, and we've been on both extremes, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the, the, this one that you went on at the wildlife management area. So how this hunt worked is the the number you were drawn as is your number to pick your own blind. So he, the landowner had maybe, I think it was 30 blinds spread across. And didn't you guys look at this huge map that was on the, on the headquarters door and it had all the different hunting blinds marked? Yes, so... We had this huge map, and it had little circles with the numbers on them, 1 through 30. And the number that you got drawn, that was your number to pick. 
So we all gathered inside of the information center, and we just, he called out our names, and we just picked our blind, and then we were set to go. So you pretty much were on your own to navigate your way to the blind. Yep. And then what? And then once we got to the blind, we could just get ready. We could not even be at the blind. It was all on your own. So they just, see, the staff was there just to sign you in and show you you're blind. Then it was all up to you. So what are some of the safety precautions that are in place on a, on a hunt like that where you're on your own? What do they tell you that you can and cannot do? They have a strict rule rule on the hours because they do not want to be held liable if you shoot something after hours or before. And they also want to make sure that you quarter your deer deer correctly. Okay, so after you, you shoot your deer, you need to process it in the field? Do they want you to do it right there in the field? No, so usually youth hunts, they're going to have skinning racks where you could set your deer up, maybe six to set your deer on. Okay, and those are usually back at the, the ranch headquarters, so you would transport your deer back to the headquarters to do that. Yep. But they want you to field dress it in the field. They want you to gut it in the field. Some they do, some they don't. Ah, okay. So whose responsibility is it to know what to do? It's yours. If you break the rules, that could lead to suspension of the range. Right, exactly. And also, that's, some, that's information that's shared usually, you know, a few weeks prior to you going onto that hunt. So if you are drawn for one of these hunts, a lot of times um, the information will get communicated to you, the rules of the ranch, you know, what you can and can't do, you know, the caliber, the minimum caliber, the maximum caliber of, of rifle they want you to bring. You know, if there's any other animals that you can um, hunt. So there's lots of different rules that you have to follow as a responsible hunter. So you get to enjoy that hunt and not be suspended or kicked off for breaking breaking a simple rule. So what about um, once you find your blind and you are assigned, are there any other safety rules that are in place once they give you your location and pretty much turn you loose to go to go hunt? You need to know what deer you can shoot what animals are legal and illegal okay so a lot of areas around texas have additional rules so even if it's a deer hunt it's not just any deer you see it might be a management hunt where they want to take out the does and maybe they want to take out the spikes so does that mean if you see a, a monster 14-point giant step out in shooting range, can you take it because you're on a deer hunt? No. No, that would definitely probably be a suspension ride home. Um, so you need to know what you can take and you need to be able to identify identify your target before you take a shot. So when everybody's in their hunting blind, um, you know the rules, you know where you're supposed to be you're getting situated in your blind, what is something that another hunter could do that could ruin ruin your day? Well, you want to be respectful as a hunter. You want to respect the game and the people around you. So it would 
be bad if you were to get into your truck and say you're done for the day and drive back to headquarters messing up 29 other hunts. Especially if you're at spot number 30, right? So even if you're done for the day, you need to think about other people. You don't want to ruin um, somebody else's hunt. You know, maybe they were just getting ready to set up on a shot and all of a sudden, you know, you've got a disrespectful neighbor down the way that revs up their big old diesel truck and starts puttering down the ranch road. You just need to be respectful of everybody around you. So by Luke and other young people learning how to do these things from a young age, what what kind of life lessons have you learned going on these youth hunts? I mean, what are some of the, you know, the skills that you've learned from a young age through hunting? Well, if you're big in hunting, it really opens your eyes to the world around you. And it really makes you a lot more manageable of yourself, respectful of others. Okay, manageable of yourself. So (laughs) have you learned patience? Yes. Have you learned how to be quiet? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And have you learned about um, being prepared? Yes. Yeah. So what are some of those things that you had to do to be prepared to go on these trips? You just need to know what you need. You need to know what you forgot so you don't forget it next time. That's right. (laughs) Well, and another thing is you need to be mindful of the law. You know, hunting is a whole nother level of rules and regulations, um, seasons, bag limits, And so not only do you have to be mindful of yourself and making sure you have everything you need for a comfortable hunting weekend, you also need to make sure that you are following the rules and regulations of the property that you're hunting on and you have the right licenses and tags and, you know, written permission if necessary or documents signed. So there's a lot to it. And sometimes even as adults, it's it's overwhelming. But by teaching them young and getting them to be part of that process, you're given ownership because if a, if a young person is going to be responsible enough to go hunting, they need to learn how to be responsible enough in everything around it. Because hunting is awesome and fun and you take the shot and you're successful, you put down a deer. Um, for example, is your hunt over? Not at all. <laughs> It just begun, right? Yeah. So what happens after that? You want to wait about 30 minutes to give the animal a chance to lay down and die. Then if you're seeing stuff, we would usually just wait. And if we're not seeing anything, we would go retrieve the deer. Okay, so you retrieve your deer. What's the first thing you do when you come up on your deer? First thing you do is tag it. Good job. So you tag it, you know, make sure you have the proper tag, you fill everything out correctly. Then what? On this hunt, what did you do? Then we brought it back to the blind and then we waited. What'd you wait for? More deer. Yeah, because <laughs> you had a couple more hours of daylight, right? So you had a pretty successful weekend, didn't you? Yeah, we did. So if I remember correctly, um, again, the temperatures were well into the 80s and it was pretty warm. And usually on a deer hunt, when the weather is that warm and steamy, um, just like people, they don't really like to be out moving around and working out too much because they're, they're warm too. So usually on warmer days during a hunt, they usually try to find shade and cool down. 
So you hunted really hard all afternoon on that Friday, all day Saturday. You didn't see nothing, 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 nothing. Sunday morning, you know, people were even leaving, weren't they, on Sunday? Oh, yeah. Because they didn't see anything and they just got frustrated and went home. But you guys stuck it out to the bitter end. And what happened a couple hours before sunset on Sunday? So we are blind, if you can imagine. We were in the bottom of a valley with open trees so it was empty and the blind was just in the middle of the field so we had about three forks leading our way but because our blind was out in the open we didn't think any any animals would come by the blind since it's visible right there so whenever we got back from whenever we came back in the afternoon we asked the landowner if we could change blinds with somebody that has left, and they said they had a really good one down the road that the people have left, so we got moved down there. Okay, so after you got all moved and settled into your new place, what'd you see? We saw deer everywhere. Yeah, and what'd you do? What were you able to do? So what happened was we saw... I think about three families, I like to say families. So I took the biggest mama out and she ran a couple ways, then fell. And then because there were so many deer, we waited a few minutes. Then a couple deer came back out to see what happened. And then I found the biggest one and I took it out. It ran a couple feet and then it fell. So you waited... You know, your recommended amount of time, got out of your blind, and you had two big does successfully on the ground that you did your job. You know, the, the landowner wanted those does taken off the property because they were overrun with deer. And I think you had, what, an hour left before shooting hours were ended. And because of your patience, because, you know, you were drawn for this amazing opportunity, you stuck it out and good things happened because you waited till the end. That's the thing about hunting is you never want to cut it short because in those actually 12 hours that we were sitting out there. That was just for that one day. Yeah. So 12 hours in one day, that's pretty hard. But in those 11 hours, we didn't see anything. But in that last hour, we saw ton of, tons of deer. So... This is one of the things that you have to wait out and stick to the end. Because I've had, I shot down deer maybe five minutes before shooting hours have ended. So you just have to stick it out. That's good. Well, good job. So um, so you were very successful this season and you put some meat in our freezer because um, we pretty much live on venison. So uh, I thank you for putting two more deer in our freezer and hopefully uh, you'll have more stories to share on a future podcast. Do you have any other last minute comments you'd like to share or, or say to our listening audience? Just if you have the chance, go hunting, go fishing, get outside and just do something. Just it's a ton of fun. Good job. All right. Well, I appreciate you spending your time with me today. So thank you, Luke Rayo. Yep. Thank you. This is Heidi Rayo. And Luke Rayo. 
and you have heard another North American Outdoors podcast. For more information, visit NorthAmericanOutdoors.org and follow me on Instagram at North American Outdoors. Have a great day. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.